ora, Nisa Bulavanaka, and welcome to Word Christchurch and this exciting session in Rankin, live from Edinburgh. I'm Vanda Simon, live from Altataya Christchurch, and I have the immense pleasure of, um, courtesy of the magic of the internet and some time zone hopping, asking questions and having a lovely conversation with one of New Zealand's favourite crime fiction writers, um, Scottish crime writer Ian Rankin. And he's the creator of one of our favourite characters, John Rebus. Now, I could easily spend half of this session um, introducing Ian and listing his amazing achievements, but we all know the enormous contribution that he has made to literature and also to the writing community. So I'm going to introduce him by his Twitter profile, which is, as an Edinburgh-based crime writer interested in beer and music. Please join me in welcoming Ian Rankin. Well, Ian, it is Saturday morning here, and you know we're all propped up on caffeine, and I'm delighted to see that you, because it's Friday night for you, and we've deprived you of a night at the pub, but I'm delighted to see that you have an uh, adequate beverage there. I've got a supply of beer from Dundee. It's pretty good. <laughs> Well, we're here today to discuss a, um, a very special novel that you have co-written, The Dark Remains, a novel that was started by Scottish author um, William McIlvanny, um, but was incomplete upon his death in 2015. So I'd really like to start by talking a wee bit about William McIlvanny, as many of our audience will be very, very familiar with your works but um, a number will not be as familiar with his writing. I mean, I must confess that I wasn't really aware of William McIlvanny's writing until I met his son, Liam, who is a Dunedin, fellow Dunedin crime writer. And I was also aware of his um, brother, Hugh, an amazing sports journalist as well. So um, let's start by talking about William McIlvanny and you know, how important was he to Scottish crime writing? Um, hugely important. Uh, he gave a lot of us our start in that he made it okay to write crime fiction. Um, it seemed to me as a young man full of vim and vigour who wanted to get into the writing business that there weren't many uh, novels being written about contemporary Scotland and specifically crime fiction exploring social issues and exploring the human condition, which crime fiction does wonderfully well and also gives a great sense of place. William McIlvanny was a working class man. Um, he was self-taught and he had become a successful literary novelist, shortlisted and winning literary prizes. Then he started writing crime fiction. And I thought, oh, well, if it's okay for William McIlvanny to write crime fiction, it's okay for me to write crime fiction. It is not a lesser form of literature. Now, this was at a time when I was studying. I was studying for a PhD in the Scottish novel. I was studying Muriel Spark. Um, and I thought of myself as wanting to be a literary novelist. Um, and, you know, wrote a crime novel about Edinburgh, basically on the back of, of Willie McIlvanny's book Laidlaw. And I actually ran up to him in 1985 at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, I ran up to him and said, oh, Mr. McIlvanny, uh, you won't, you won't know me, I'm not published yet, uh, but I'm a big fan of your books, um, and I'm writing a book that's a bit like Laidlaw, but set in Edinburgh. And will you sign this book for me? And he signed it, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. That's fantastic. And he, pr he, he probably thought, I'll never see this guy again, never hear from him again. Um, but, you know, years later, we ended up meeting, corresponding, doing events together, and then when he came back into print, because the, 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 the sadness is that his books were out of print for a long time. Um, it wasn't seen as being fashionable or in anymore. And then Canongate, an Edinburgh-based publisher, brought his books back into print, specifically the uh, Laidlaw, the three Laidlaw novels. And Scottish crime writers wrote really nice things about them for the cover. And Willie got an inkling that actually he'd had a bigger effect on these writers than he had known. And then audiences started to come to see him at events. Hundreds of people came to see him, and it dawned on them that these books had had a much bigger impact on people than he had realised. And also, perhaps, that he had sold his character Laidlaw Short by only giving him three books. So um, how different was his writing then when he first came out with Laidlaw compared to uh, Scottish crime fiction at the time? What made that character so pivotal? 
Well, you know, I'm not sure there wasn't much Scottish crime fiction at the time. Scotland had a great, with a great um, depth of people writing Gothic fiction, certainly people who were influenced by the Gothic novels like um, Jekyll and Hyde, and a book called Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which is often referenced by Scottish crime novelists. But we didn't have a we didn't have an Agatha Christie figure. We didn't have a Dorothy L. Sayers figure. We did have Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> but Arthur Conan Doyle had run away. He had left Scotland as soon as his um, university uh, studies were finished, and didn't really come back. He maintained a Scots accent his whole life, but he chose to set his books. Although his character Sherlock Holmes is based on one of his lecturers at Edinburgh University, he chose to set the books in London, and so. Yes, there is, there is a great world, worldwide known, revered Scottish crime writer. But it didn't seem to me that anybody was doing it at that time when, when Mark O'Banney came along. So he legitimised it then that you could write crime fiction if you were a Scot in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, and it was at a time when Scottish literature was just about to undergo a renaissance anyway. We had a book called uh, Lanark by Alistair Gray that was a, a shot in the arm um, to Scottish writing, um, and then of course Trainspotting came along later, later, and that was another shot in the arm uh, for Scottish writing. Um, and we had the guy called James Kelman, who eventually won the Booker Prize. He was being published, and these writers were writing about working class urban experience. And the crime novel is very good at writing about working class urban experience. So um, everything just seemed to coalesce, and a bunch of young writers came along at much the same time, who wanted to write books about contemporary urban life, um, politics, social issues, um, the state of the world, but also digging deep into why human beings continue all across the globe to do terrible things, specifically to each other. And you see a, a lot of that in many of the novels that you've just described. Um, so William McIlvaney with Laidlaw then kind of broke new ground bringing it there and They've, people have said that uh, he was the first writer of um, Tartan Noir. So <laughs> how, how would you put your finger on what defines Tartan Noir? And I see you laugh and giggle because there's a bit of a story behind the title, the Tartan Noir too, isn't there? Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I invented that. So, you know, I've got to put my <laughs> hand up and say that was me. Um, I, for a long time, I pretended it was James Elroy. because so I went up to James Elroy once, the American crime writer at a, at a festival uh, and said, oh, you won't know me. This is going to, going to be a familiar theme throughout the evening. Um, <laughs> you won't know me. I write novels set in Scotland that are a little bit like your books. Um, that You could call them Tartan Noir. And he wrote in my book, uh, to Ian Rankin, The King of Tartan Noir. So I pretended that, that, that he had made that up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lazy term, I guess, because Scottish literature, for a small country, a country of five million people, as many people in New Zealand will know, um, the, the crime scene is very varied. It's a very broad church. Um, we've got everything from Mama Ramotswe, written by my one-time neighbour, Alexander McCall Smith, kind of cosy mysteries set in Botswana, through to psychological thrillers, the kind of things that Denise Miner does, We've got dark comedy and satire, sort of thing Chris Brookmire does and other writers do. Um, we've got Val McDermott, very dark, quite gothic, textured books and me. And there's a whole, there's a whole gamut of writers. Um, we've also got J.K. Rowling, of course, um, as Robert Galbraith, another Edinburgh writer. Um, and, uh, OK, she sets her books in London again, but we'll, we'll soon get that knocked out of her, I hope. <laughs> Well, it must be one hell of a neighbourhood then you've got if you had uh, <laughs> these neighbours. And the local pub must be just rocking with people sitting there trying to fathom ways to kill each other in literature. No, it, was, it was cafes, it was cafes. There was a time when I was in a street uh, and two doors away, two houses away, was Alexander McCall Smith. And if you went to the top of our road and turned left, there was J.K. Rowling. And um, Kate Atkinson was about a quarter mile further along. And then in further in town, you had other writers as well. It was an extraordinary thing. And there was one occasion in the local cafe where all three of us, me, McCall Smith and J.K. Rowling, were all in the cafe at the same time um, <laughs> and, and had, a, had a chat. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was weird. It was kind of 
I don't know. It's for a small city. I mean, Edinburgh is a city of what? It must be half a million people, probably maximum. Never used to be that many, even. But the number of artistic people, specifically writers, who have chosen to live here is just extraordinary and, and keeps growing. And what is it about the physical environment there that makes everyone's soul so dark? Well, it's quite a dark city in some ways. It's a very Jekyll and Hyde city, which is why Robert Louis Stevenson, I mean, it's where he got the idea for the book, uh, was partly from a couple of real Edinburgh characters, real Scottish characters. One was a guy called William Brodie, Deacon William Brodie, who was gentleman by day and thief by night and was eventually hanged. And he was a carpenter and he was hanged on a scaffold that he had actually made. Um, so that sense of being one thing during the day or one thing in daylight, something else at night, um, partly gave Stevenson the idea, specifically because Stevenson, as a child, had a wardrobe in his bedroom made by William Brodie. So his nursemaid would tell him the story of this guy, who was good and evil in the same character. Um, so th there's, that, there's that kind of darkness. Um, uh, and, and then the, the other thing that Jekyll and Hyde was based on was a real Scottish um, uh, doctor, who went to uh, London and consorted with um, body snatchers and had sort of gruesome experiments he would carry out in his, uh, in his laboratory. Um, and the way that Stevenson describes the, the house of Dr. Jekyll in London is very much like this guy's house. So that darkness is there, that Gothic, the Gothic stuff is there. In Edinburgh, you walk around Edinburgh, specifically late at night, and many people around you will have done this, been here for a, a holiday and gone for a walk through Edinburgh, it can feel as though it's the 17th century, it can feel as though it's the 18th century, because a lot of the central city really hasn't changed that much. If you walk down the Royal Mile and go down some of the little alleyways and you're alone, you will feel that you've gone back 300 years in history. And behind these thick walls and behind these darkened windows, anything could be happening. Um, and that's what I like about it, is that Edinburgh shows you one face, but hides another face. Um, uh, and so there's the world of Edinburgh that the tourist sees, and there's the Edinburgh that those of us who live here know. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier that... A bit like, a bit like, a bit like Dunedin, Vanda. I know, yes. It's got this little grimy, under-seething seething underbelly, which we all love about it. But do come <laughs> to Dunedin. It's a perfectly safe place. <laughs> Now, William McAvaney, you mentioned earlier that you had met him in person, and one of the things that comes across in his, in his books is, is, you know, the wry humour. Was humour like that in real life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Willie was an extraordinary man. I mean, I've said he was a self-made writer. He was an intellectual. Uh, his character Laidlaw proudly on his desk in the detective's room, the office he shares with other detectives. He has books of philosophy by Camus and Unamuno and other writers. And these are books that Willie enjoyed. Willie read for pleasure and read to, to, to better himself. He had that sense of sort of pulling himself up um, uh, all his life. Uh, but he was funny. He was down to earth. He was self-deprecating. He was very generous. Uh, he was also incredibly handsome. He looked like Clark Gable or something. He had those kind of uh, film star good looks, uh, again, throughout his life. But just a lovely, warm guy. And... Um, it was lovely, the third act in his life where his books came back into print and these huge audiences were turning up to see him was just wonderful to witness. I interviewed him at, there's a big um, crime fiction festival in Harrogate in England and it was something like a Saturday or Sunday morning, 10 a.m. And he thought, who the hell's going to come to see me? And we were backstage, who the hell's going to come to see me? Nobody knows who I am. And we walked out, there must have been 800 people in the room, standing room only, he got a standing ovation and he almost rose up into the sky because he was so thrilled um, and appreciative of that. And it was just lovely that he got that. I'm just sad that he didn't stick around. I haven't got the idea, I think, to bring Laidlaw back on the back of that success. I'm very sad that he never lived to see it to fruition. And one of the amazing things about him, as you said, you know, he's a very versatile writer. He was also a poet. Um, and, you know, I sort of felt in reading Laidlaw that that certainly came through um, in his in his writing, do you think that, you know, that poetic voice was reflected in his writing across the board? Yeah, I mean, he, he, the reason he only wrote three Laidlaw novels was that he felt there were things he wanted to do that could not be contained within the crime novel. Mm. He wanted to write literary novels, he wanted to write plays, he wanted to write song lyrics, he wanted to write poetry, he wanted to write uh, political essays and reviews and all sorts. So he stepped away from crime fiction. 
Um, but his books are beautifully written. They are poetic, I think. They're much more poetic than the Rebus novels. This was one of the challenges uh, that I had when I, you know, when I took on this project. One of the challenges was, can I write like William McIlvaney? Because I was very keen that this book, if, if you could see me peeping out from the words in this book, I had failed. This had to read like a William McIlvaney novel. So you, you didn't uh, think that there was license there for this to be almost like a hybrid where we could hear Will, um, William McIlvaney's voice, but we could no. also see... Had to be no, and a, a couple of people have, have flagged up a couple of things that I've put in the book. Just a word here and there, they've said, that's definitely you. And it's, I mean, right on page one, I think there's mention of um, Bible John, mm. um, who I used in my novel um, Black and Blue. And that was me. Willie didn't mention that in, in, in his notes. So, yeah, so hands up, I, guilty. I, I have been spotted. But, no, I was very keen that it be Willie's book, Willie's story, Willie's philosophy, Willie's city. Um, and that was a challenge because I'd never tried anything like that before where I'm trying to be a ventriloquist. But it started off with, I mean, I've actually got it here. It started off with some notes. Um, and it's about 100 pages typed up by somebody at the publisher, Canongate. There were handwritten notes that Willie's uh, widow, Siobhan Lynch, eventually handed over a few years after he died. Um, and Canongate came to me and said, do you think, there's any, is there anything here? Is there, any, is there a book here? Is there something here? And, and so the first act for me before anybody said, oh, by the way, do you want to write this book? The first act was as a, an archaeologist. So I was digging through these notes, trying to make sense of them. And it turned out there were at least two books that Willie was thinking of. And I think he was thinking of a prequel and a final book. He was thinking of a book at the start of Laidlaw's career and a book at the very end of Laidlaw's career. And he was going to write these two books and that would bookend the sequence. Um, and it was quite a lot of the prequel and hardly anything of the final book. But there were other notes for what might be short stories. There were character sketches. I wasn't sure if they belonged anywhere. There were characters who seemed to change their name, but it seemed to be the same person. Um, there was a ton of stuff. And so I was going through it, sort of brushing delicately around each bit of it to see what was there, what was usable. And then eventually I went to Canongate and said, yeah, there's a, there's a novel here. There's a, there's a novel here if you, if you do X, Y, and Z. And that was when he said, well, will you do it? Um, because Siobhan wants you to do it. So, and that was when I took a sharp intake of breath. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> so um, so this is the, the project was actually driven by Siobhan and, and, and just wanting to do something more for the legacy of Willie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, to keep his books alive, to keep him alive through his books, so that readers wouldn't forget about him again because they had, they'd forgotten about him once or a lot of readers had been allowed to forget about him because his books had been allowed to drift out of print. I think all of that was there. And there was enough. I mean, it was, there's 100 pages of notes and not all of them were usable and some of them are, are repeats. He would go over a scene again and again or come back to a one-liner and give it an extra polish. Um, so there was a lot that couldn't make it into the book. Um, but there was enough. There was a thread. It, there was no ending. Uh, <laughs> There was, crucially, there was no ending. Um, there was a, a postscript, like an epilogue, uh, but there was no climactic scene. And I had to sort of feel my way towards how, what I felt that climactic scene would be, who the killer was, and how Willie would handle it. Well, that would be it. I was, was going to ask that later on. was like, oh, did you actually have to decide who did it and, and why, why they did it? So... That must have been very cool. Was the text, any of it actually like just straight manuscript or, or was it just little notes and paragraphs and bits and pieces? No, there's a bit. I mean, the, um, the opening, uh, in the, there's a scene in the pub just before a body is found behind the pub. That's pretty complete. Um, there was a lot of that that Willie had written up. Later on, it got a bit sketchier. Uh, was, there was less meat and just an occasional line or an idea what the scene would be or who would be in the scene. Um, but by then, there was a thread had been established. I sort of felt that I knew where he wanted the story to go. Um, uh, it was just a matter of finding out how to do it. So when you were approached to do this, did Siobhan actually specifically want you to do it or the publishers? How, how was it you 
who was the one who was put in the hot seat for this project? Uh, the, the, the publisher, Canongate, said it was Siobhan. Mm. Um, she, she, has, she runs Willie's estate. Uh, her and Willie's uh, agent, uh, she, was, she was apparently set on me having the first dibs, as it were, mm. getting the first go, getting the first look at it. Um, and in fact, later on, I was told that I was the only writer she thought about doing it because, I don't know, she felt there was a connection between me and Willie, maybe, mm. in terms of the fact that he had almost mentored me, maybe, um, that we'd got close laterally when he'd when his career had taken off again um i'd met her several times so we had a kind of relationship there there was a kind of friendship there um so possibly all of that played a part um and maybe also i don't know maybe they thought well let's put a big put a, get a big name on the front and we might sell a few copies <laughs> now, when you were doing your um though after you'd taken your deep intake of breath and probably a few of the beverages that you're consuming now. Did you um, have a look at other works? Because, you know, there have been other writers who, and authors who have also completed the works of um, deceased writers. Uh, any of those that you thought were particularly successful and well done? Oh, there are. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's been done. Um, uh, was it Robert Crace who finished the... Uh, oh, no, it wasn't Robert Crace. Uh, the, the Poodle Springs Mystery, which was a Raymond Chandler book that was left unfinished, was finished by somebody whose name is escaping me at the moment. I didn't look at much of that, no. This, I, uh, what I did do was do a deep dive back into McIlvany, um, read and reread and reread the Laidlaw novels, taking lots of notes about characters, character arcs. How old people would be? I mean, this book is set in... 1972. Well, the first Laidlaw novel that Willie published was set around about 76, 77. So I had to go back and think, okay, so how old is Laidlaw? How old are Laidlaw's kids? How old is Laidlaw's wife, etc., etc. And then what was happening in Glasgow in 1972? What was the city like? Um, what was going on in the world, in the wider world? Uh, what were the street layouts? Because the street layouts, the street plans would be different. The M8, big motorway, was being built through the middle of Glasgow um, at that time. A lot of buildings were being knocked down. A lot of families were being displaced to shiny new high-rise apartment blocks uh, on the periphery of the city. So there was a kind of, you know, the, things were shifting um, in, in terms of the way society was structured. So all of that I had to take on board. Um, luckily, it all happened during lockdown. So they, uh, Canongate approached me, and I think it was April or May last year, so we were still in lockdown. I'd literally just finished writing A Song for the Dark Times, a Rebus novel, which was also written in lockdown. So I was sitting in this very room in my office going, what, do, what the hell do I do now? I can't travel. You can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere outside a five-mile radius of Edinburgh. Nothing's open. Pubs aren't open. Um, cinemas, shops aren't open. Uh, uh, nothing's open. So what do I do? Oh, someone's given me a job. Great. So they probably got me at a weak moment. And, uh, and, and so I really enjoyed sitting in this room and just die, just spending time inside William McIlvany's head. I said to them, look, I'll give it a go, but if, if I think I'm not capturing his voice and I'm not getting his philosophy, his way of looking at the world, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it back to you. So that was, that was there. I think that was actually in the contract. <laughs> Mr. Rankin can walk away at any moment. <laughs> Not many publishers are brave enough to put that clause in a contract. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, The Dark Remains is a, um, you know, going back to his first case, is, is an origins-type story. So having gone through all his, read his Laidlaw novel, novels and seen some of these big characters, you know, Cam Colvin and John Rhodes, were you able to weave in, you know, a bit of origin story for them, you know, why they were like they were? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to do too much. I didn't want to tinker with Willie's world too much in ways that he might not have approved of. But I could tell that he was secretly in love with the gangster John Rhodes <laughs> because John Rhodes gets a lot of screen time, as it were, compared to the other characters, other gangsters. Um, and also he's treated with kid gloves by Willie and by Laidlaw. And reading about John Rhodes, I went, oh, God, Ian, this is where you got Cafferty from. My character Cafferty in the Rebus novels really starts with John Rhodes. Um, and when I went back and looked at Cafferty, the first mention of, of Cafferty in the Rebus novels 
uh, is book three. And he's a Glasgow gangster. He's actually a Glasgow gangster. And I forgot that. And when I brought him back in later books, he's an Edinburgh gangster. And I gave him a completely different backstory. So Cafferty's got two different backstories depending on which book you read. So he definitely he was he was he was nicked from from Michael Vanney and nicked from John Rhodes. I like John Rhodes a lot. Yeah, so that's the thing actually because when I was reading the, the notes, there were three gangsters, three different gangs, three different gangsters, and I thought that's a bit much. If I were writing this from scratch, I would not have three gangs. It's just too much. Two gangs maybe, one gang okay, but not three. But because Willie had put three gangsters in, three gangsters there must be. Um, what he hadn't done much with, with was um, women characters. And uh, the notes I got back from Canongate when I gave him the first draft, they had two big critiques, two big things about me to look at. They said, Ian, it's basically just a lot of hard men sitting around in smoky pubs psyching each other out. And I went, yep, that's what the laid law novels are. And he said, and also, there aren't many strong women characters. And I went, yep, that's what the laid law novels are. Well, they asked me to go away and think about that and to make a few changes. So I did add more scenes involving the, the women who were already there, the, the, the women characters in the book. And I did manage to make it a bit more kinetic and get these guys uh mostly the gangsters, to get them out of the smoky pubs and get them onto the streets or into the cars they drive, drive around in. Um, but in doing that, possibly it makes it less of a William McIlvany novel. Um, it makes it more modern, maybe, or more up-to-date, slightly more PC, but it makes it less like Willie's books were. Mm. One of the strengths of William's books and of this one is, as you say, John Rhodes, where you have these awful gangsters... But they are likable. Um, you know, there are definitely elements that you can relate to in their family lives and things like that. Was that one of the like the hallmarks of a McIlvany novel and how he broke new ground in crime fiction? Yeah, I mean, he liked to write about um, hard men, men toughened by circumstance, by life, working class guys, guys who worked on the mines, guys who work in industry. Um, whose worlds are falling apart for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, their, their sense of their own, their macho sense of themselves is, is what gives them validation, um, validity in the world. Uh, he's very good in that. Doherty, he's very good in it in Doherty and, and various other books, lots of books. So there's certainly that. But Glasgow is that kind of city. You know, one of the most famous Glasgow novels was called No Mean City. Um, and was about razor gangs and stuff. I mean, Glasgow has always had that reputation of being a very tough place to live and where you've got to be tough to survive. Um, and a book that was really interesting to me was uh, there was a, a, well, gangland figures. There were a few, a few gangland figures who'd written their autobiographies or their memoirs. One was called Jimmy Boyle. And Jimmy Boyle had written this book, A Sense of Freedom, about his life as a, a young tearaway becoming a member of a gang, suddenly being well-paid for his services, for being a thug and a gangster, um, a guy who scares people for money. And then he gets put away. And when he's put in jail, he discovers his creative side and he becomes a sculptor. Um, and that book was fascinating to me because it is all set around the late 60s, early 70s. So these, this is very much the kind of person I was talking about. And, you know, some of these people weren't all completely stupid. Some of them were just from the wrong side of the tracks or their life had taken a wrong turn at some point, but they weren't all stupid. And certainly someone like John Rhodes is not at all stupid. And I think he appreciates that the cop, Laidlaw, doesn't treat him as a lesser form of, of life, that he treats them with a modicum of respect and gets that respect back. Because they, they do have that interesting relationship, and that was one of the things that uh, struck me straight away uh, with that, was that it wasn't um, extremely black and white, that relationship they had. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these... I mean, one of Whitley's books, and I forget which one, but it's definitely one of the uh, Laidlaw novels, starts Glasgow, the city of the stare, S-T-A-R-E. Yeah. You know, you, when you walk into a bar you know, you, you can't look weak. You've got to fix people with a look and let everyone in that bar know that you're not someone to be messed with. And this is literally before you reach the bar to make the order for your drink. 
Um, and it's actually code that these, these tough guys had back in the 70s um, that they lived by. They lived by. And uh, it wasn't much fun for the women, I've got to say, because these guys eventually went home and took all that anger with them. Um, but that's just the way the city was. And, I mean, it has changed a lot. It's changed a lot in the last 20, 30 years, um, Glasgow. Uh, and... Uh, and for the better, I think it has changed for the better, and people have changed for the better as well. Because you've taken, you know, you've had your Rebus novels on the mean streets of Edinburgh, and then now this Laidlaw one and the mean streets of Glasgow. Um, which is the hardest city, you know, in, in your <laughs> mind, <laughs> without without causing political ructions and and and? Oh no, Gla Glasgow, 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 <laughs> Glasgow, Glasgow. Edinburgh's got a different. I mean, there are gangs in Edinburgh, but they're kind of small beer compared to Glasgow. Um, what Edinburgh's got is uh, financial crime, invisible crime. It's got corruption, invisible crime. It's got political shenanigans. It's got all of that because it's the seat of government and a lot of the big um, companies have their offices here. The banks have their offices here. Um, so there's invisible crime happening. A lot of what happens in Edinburgh happens beneath the surface. So as you walk down the Royal Mile, there's somebody in a kilt playing a bagpipe, lovely. There's a castle, there's a palace of Holyrood, lovely. You're not seeing any of this. It's happening a ways away, um, and it's happening behind, you know, windows and doors and walls. So that, but that, like, I like that. I like the fact that the, the, the violence and the crime isn't on the surface, that it's, it's buried quite deep and you have to dig to find it. Um, and the world that Willie writes about is a different world. I mean, these gangsters are kind of, they're petty criminals, really. They're uh, extortion, protection rackets. It's that kind of thing. Um, and drugs, I guess, by the early 70s, drugs were starting to come in. Um, but, you know, there, there were people in white-collar jobs cheating people out of much more money than these guys were ever going to make, yeah. um, but doing it invisibly. They say the scariest people are men in suits. Yeah, yeah, they do, and uh, more of them should be in jail. <laughs> so creatively for you, how was it as a writer and from a writing perspective starting out on a project where you had confines in place, characters already existing? Um, it, was, it was more fun than I thought it was going to be, and it was in some ways easier than I thought it was going to be, and you'll appreciate this, Vanda, 1972 is a much easier time to write about than the present day because your cops don't have CCTV. They don't have DNA analysis to fall back on. They don't have computers in their offices. They don't have mobile phones, cell phones. Uh, they don't have any of that stuff. They're living by their wits. They've got human intelligence, i.e. snitches, grasses, whatever you call them, um, they get to know the city, they walk around the city, they go into pubs, they hand over £5 notes or pound notes and get some information from somebody. They go use telephone boxes to make phone calls and, and make rendezvous that way. And so it was a lovely, compared to the Edinburgh that I write about in the Rebus novels, it was a much simpler world, really. And, um, and I really liked that. It was like a holiday. Because, <laughs> you know, in a, in a crime novel, when we write crime novels, we've got to go, oh, yeah, but if, but if they have a cell phone, they could just phone for help or they could text or they could let people know that they've been kidnapped or whatever. Um, or why isn't that car being picked up on CCTV if they've been kidnapped? How come nobody knows where the car went? How come there's no DNA at the scene of the crime? Uh, so we've got to factor all that in now because our readers are clever people and our readers know that. They know all this stuff. So we've got to factor that in. And that can, A, that can slow down the plot because you really want to get on with the story. You don't want to be tied up with the technology. Um, and B, you've got to know, you've got to learn this stuff. Uh, and I'm a very lazy writer at heart. I would rather just make shit up <laughs> than, uh, than have to do a lot of work. So, um, so for me, it was just a breath of fresh air to write about. I'm still waiting for Glasgow writers specifically crime writers, uh, to come along and say, nah, you, you, did, you didn't get Glasgow, you didn't capture Glasgow at all. Yeah, but then, um, or people who were around in 72, because in 72, 1972, I was 12 years old and living in a mining village in Fife, which is just north of Edinburgh. So along, I'd never been to Glasgow. In 1972, I had never been to Glasgow. 
Um, I don't think I would go to Glasgow until about 1978-79. So um, it was a world I really didn't know at all. And trying to capture it from a flat in Edinburgh, you know, was, was I don't know, didn't seem difficult, but maybe other people have got other ideas as to whether I did it justice or not. Well, you know, if they do complain about it, you can just say, oh, that was Willie's bit. <laughs> yeah, that's real. I do that all the time. That was, that was Willie's bit. You know that, you know that really, you know that repetition there? Oh, no, that was Willie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you so... can't defame the dead. Yeah. You cannot defame the dead. So here's a question for you. So if you carked it, would you want one of your, un your, the unfinished work that you're working on at the moment to be completed by another writer? Oh, cheers. Um, well, the, the, un the, 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 the unfinished work is unstarted. Um, the, the, un the, the unfinished work consists of a deadline and me panicking at the moment. Uh, and this is always a worrying time for my wife. When I start writing a book, my wife keeps saying, how's it going, how's it going? I go, yeah, yeah, I'm 50 pages in, 80 pages in, 100 pages in, 150. She goes, great, I can relax now. Because she knows once it's 150 pages in, if I do die, somebody can probably finish it. Uh, and she, she literally says that to me. She says, oh, that's great. We're past the danger point now. <laughs> Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, you know what? I mean, I can, whether somebody would finish my book or not, I don't know. But we know that, that good characters, great characters don't die. The authors die, but the characters don't. So here in the UK, Colin Dexter passed away, the author of Inspector Morse. They just reinvented the TV show and did Young Morse, Endeavour it's called. No input from the author, none of his plots, no nothing, but very successful. And when, you know, people keep coming along and writing Sherlock Holmes stories, reinventing Sherlock Holmes, um, it happens. It happens. If you've got a great character, you might not survive, but they will. So I can see somebody in the future doing young Rebus. Um, I just don't know who it would be. Young Rebus wouldn't have to contend with trying to learn how to do Twitter and social media, though. Well, old, old Rebus doesn't have to contend with Twitter <laughs> and social media. Old Rebus can barely use his phone. Uh, like me, his computer is run on coal. He has to <laughs> shovel coal into it every morning before he boots it up. Um, no, I'm, this, is, this is weird to me to be doing stuff through Zoom. I, a year ago, I didn't know what the hell Zoom was. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, there is a bit of fun to be had in poor old Rebus trying to come to terms with the uh, rapidly changing technological world. Um, I quite like that. I quite like sort of, I, I, like, I like the fact that he's ageing and I like the fact that I'm ageing with him. And he's going through some of the things that I will have to go through in a few years' time. Um, but the clock is ticking. I don't know how many more adventures he can have at the age he is now or the age he is going to be in the next year or two. So I don't know how I handle that at all. Um, the next book is probably going to be a rebus, and it's probably going to be set in the current day. <laughs> the biggest, biggest problem I've got is, do I mention masks? Mm. Yes. You know, what do we do? What do we writers do with our books set in the present day? Do we mention the COVID pandemic? Do we mention it in passing? Do we make it germane to the plot? Are people still wearing masks? Do we mention that? Are readers sick to the back teeth of masks? I don't know. Um, it might be time to get Rebus into a nursing home, <laughs> an old folks' home. Uh, and, and then I can just hand the, hand the baton over to Richard Osman, and Richard yes. Osman can write the books for me. Sounds brilliant. Now, you mentioned earlier that in the material that you received from the publisher and all the notes, that there was two works there, the, um, going back to the first case of um, Laidlaw and then something later at the end. Um, would you be tempted to take on doing the latter novel? No. Um, there wasn't enough there to get me interested. There was a title and there were a few notes that kind of sketched out what the book might be about but it was a few pages um if that it was a few pages i can see another writer taking it on but it would be that writer's book i don't think it would be a william McIlvanny novel in the way that this is a william McIlvanny novel um it would be in the spirit of william McIlvanny, but it wouldn't be his and i've got no interest in doing that 
I think I've, I've done my stint. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't. I mean, there was there, there were... There, there were, there were things I had to leave out of this book that I was a bit sad about. There was a character he introduced who was flying back from America <clears throat> and came to Glasgow, and I couldn't quite work out what this character was supposed to be doing. So he got pushed to one side. So possibly that stuff could be cannibalised uh, and used in another book or a short story or a novella. I don't know, but I won't be doing it. So you've done this collaboration um, with... William McIlvaney with the book, and you've done some pretty out there projects and different things. Um, you've done a graphic novel and uh, plays, and also um, like a, a CD, music CD with somebody. Yeah. And, and, and now I believe you're venturing into the realms of television. Tell us a wee bit about that. Oh, yeah. Well, this is for you, actually, Amanda. Oh. Um, murder, murder Island. Murder Island. Oh, can you uh, say the word so murder again? <laughs> Murder, Thank murder, you. murder island. Don't you um, just love that? There you go. Yeah, I know. It's, it's uh, Tiger, isn't it? It's Tiger. Every yeah. time Tiger says murder, there's been a murder. Um, Mordor. Very similar. Uh, yeah, so murder island. So it's uh, literally just finished the, the Mac O'Vanny project, sitting back, still in lockdown. What do I do now? Um, a television company came along and said, hey, we've got a great idea for a TV game show called Murder Island. Uh, a murder will happen on a Scottish island and contestants, members of the public, will have come along with real police officers watching over them and try and solve the crime. And actors will play out the roles of the suspects. Will you script it for us? And so I scripted it. And it just grew. It grew and grew and grew. And I did more and more writing for it. And they filmed it uh, April, May this year, and it's went on TV in the UK in October, November. The last episode was last week. It was six parts, six hours, and it was amazing. We had real lawyers defending in the interview room, defending the suspects who were actors. We had um, uh, real cops watching over the contestants and saying, you got that wrong, or, you know, good, keep going, or that was a terrible interview. We had dramatic bits where I would script a kind of conversation between two actors playing the roles and things. We had backstory, so we actually got to know quite a lot about the victim. Um, and, it, and it was a £50,000 prize. So we, it was a knockout. So we had four teams of two at the start, went down to one team, but they only got the money if they could put together a case that the prosecutor was willing to take to court. So um, now, having done it, and people over here were very excited about it, and it did really well, I'm thinking, OK, Murder Island, New Zealand. Mm. We need a New Zealand crime writer. Uh-oh. <laughs> and you've got, you've got plenty of islands. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, we can do, and you can do Murder Island. I said to them I'd be quite interested in doing Murder Island Caribbean. Uh, yeah. You'd volunteer yeah, for that might, personally? Yeah, I'd probably, you know, I might do that. I didn't, the island they filmed it on in Scotland was called Gia. Uh, G-I-G-H-A. It's a beautiful small island off the west coast of mainland Scotland. Um, I didn't go because they had created a bubble. They had to create a bubble with the actors and everything and the crew. So I thought, I don't want to interfere with that. So I, I didn't literally didn't set foot on gear. My role was all in this very room here, um, doing everything through Zoom. All the meetings with the, with the producers, the director, the casting people were all done through Zoom. Um, but it was great. And I can see it, you know, Murder Island Canada, Murder Island USA, Murder Island everywhere. Why not? Brilliant. Well, it's actually time to open up to questions from our audience. And we're actually going to try something pretty special today on the, on the um, audience questions front, and that if you have a question, we're actually going to invite you to come up and sit in this chair and ask the question so that you can see Ian and Ian can see you. So if you do have a question um, in mind, I'd like you just to come down and form an orderly one-metre distanced queue in the corner over there. <laughs> and, and, and I'll just invite you up onto the stage. And when you're up on the stage, you're welcome to take your mask off when you're sitting in the chair. But you'll need to pop that, you know, keep that on while you're in the queue and waiting. So please, if you have a question, do come down and do that. Um, my question is, you were saying about how Rebus is getting old now. Um, in all seriousness, w will you retire him? And if you did retire him, would you begin with a whole new character again, or would you go into something entirely different? I, I, I don't know what I would do. Um, I, the one thing, you know, the one thing I, I, that this writing this Michael Vanny book has done is made because I was always very resistant to a young Rebus novel. 
But this was fun going back in time. So I'm thinking maybe there is room for a young Rebus novel. Go back to these early days. And the good thing about that is suddenly he's virile again. He's virile. He's full of vim and vigor and he's macho and he's hard, hard as nails. And he's getting in fights and everything else. Um, so that might be quite fun. And going back to the 80s, which is when he started his career. Um, but I don't know what, would, what else I would do. It depends if the good Lord spares me or not. Um, my wife is very keen for me to write fewer books and take more time off and do some traveling. Um, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to fight her to keep writing. Um, cause you know, we're both in our sixties now and she's thinking there might be time for me to take my foot off the, the, the gas, my foot off the pedal and for us to actually enjoy life a bit more. And this would be the same wife that was hovering over your shoulder saying, how many words have you done? <laughs> Yeah, 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 the same wife who makes, wants to make sure there's one final book uh, <laughs> to, keep, to keep her comfortable in her old age. That's right. Thank, Thank you. you. Hello. Um, yeah, Ian, I was just interested in your writing process and if you could talk a bit about that. You mentioned you're a, a lazy writer. Um, do you do much planning with your um, novels, with plots, or do you just kind of start and see where it, where it takes you? Vanda can maybe pitch in here. A lot of people think that crime fiction is, uh, is is almost like geometry or something. It's all plotted out, planned in advance. But many crime writers don't know when they start a book where that book is going to go, or at least where that book is going to end up. When I start a book, I almost never know what the ending is going to be. Often I don't know who the killer is when I start um, or why the, why the crime happened. I've got an inkling, but I don't know. So I know as little as my detectives. And the first draft is me being the detective and finding clues out as the detectives find them. And often it goes off in tangents and things I think are going to happen in the book don't happen in the book, but the book's got a better idea of where it wants to go than I do. So we've got two categories of writers in crime fiction. We've got planners and pantsers. Do you, do you fly by the seat of your pants? And I'm definitely a pantser. Um, and I've often said this, if, if I, yeah, good. If I, if I knew everything that was going to happen in the book, why would I need to write the book? And I write the book to find out what happens in the book. So um, I'm happy working that way, but it doesn't work. It's not a science. So if you are a, a writer or you want to be a writer, I wouldn't say this necessarily is going to work for you. Some people need to plot a lot in advance. They need to know everything that's going to happen. They need proper chapters and everything else structured before they get into it. And other writers just go, well, I'll just try writing something today and see where it goes. So do you get stuck? And if Oh, so... blah, 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 blah. Touch wood, touching wood here. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, I can say, I can legitimately say I've never got stuck. Yeah. Sometimes there's a sticky point, and I'll go and talk it through with my wife. I'll say, look, Rebus needs to get from this situation to that situation. How can I do it? And we'll bounce it around. Um, my son uh, is becoming quite adept at this as well. I can talk things through with him. Um, but I don't know. Writer's block is not something I've, I've, I've had. Um, it's, uh, right now I'm at the start of a process where I've got to start writing a book and I don't know yet what that book is. Well, that's kind of terrifying. But I've been there before and it's been terrifying. And then something's gone, oh, hang on a minute. What about that? That would make quite a good story. And if you did that, you could also add this, this, and this, and this. And before you know it, this, the plot goes, hey, come on, come in. The water's lovely, you know? And the book knows, the book is there. The book is floating around in the ether, waiting to be written. And you've just got to channel it. So, Ian, um, you, you mentioned sometimes you don't know who did it and how it's going to end. What's the furthest on and you've gotten in a novel where you haven't known who did, who did it and we were getting to the panicking wildly stage? Uh, the Hanging Garden, The Hanging Garden, it was the second draft. Um, the first draft was finished and just these big empty spaces to be filled in later. Um, and, I, and, and then I read through the first draft and I went, oh, hang on, maybe it was you because of X, Y and Z. Um, but that was kind of worrying when you get to the end of the first draft, having played detective and you still don't know who the killer is. Um, but, you know, plot will find a way. Plot will find a way. <laughs> Great, thank you. Now, I'm just going to ask one little last question before we have to wrap this up. And this is because you carefully dodged answering uh -oh. this part of the very first question that we had, and uh, probably what you're waiting for there. You never actually said whether you would start a whole new series with a new character. 
I don't think so. But then who knows? I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I've got an I've, I've got an idea for a for a non rebus book. I've got an idea for a standalone high concept thriller, and I was actually going to write that, but then um, I was persuaded that maybe a rebus novel would be good as a warm up to that. So um, so the high concept thriller is sitting there in the in the big box of ideas. Uh, for for when I when I get if, if and when I get to it, but no, um, I don't. I'm not. Some writers have you know the next five or ten books plotted out, or they can't even know what they're doing for the next five or ten books. I literally sitting here with a June deadline for a book that will come out in October next year, and I got nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing. There's there's nothing like adrenaline surge to spur on those that's creative part of it. juices. That, that's that, honestly that is it's the it's the fear, the panic, everything else. Also, I was a journalist. I mean, I was a magazine journalist. I didn't do it for very long. But that thing where you've got to write to deadline, you can't, you can't put a magazine out, a monthly magazine out with empty pages because you haven't thought of anything to write that month. You can't do it. So that, I think, is, is good because when the adrenaline gets going, you start to find the stories. You start to find something that uh, is worth writing about. And um, that's the stage I'm at now. I'm at the panic attack stage. <laughs> But the panic attack stage is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, our time is up, um, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Ian. And I just want to say thank you to our audience in person, but also a huge thank yeah. you to the online audience that we've got out there as well. But, yeah, thank you so much, Ian, for, for, for sharing so generously your stories about, um, uh, about William McIlvaney and about your writing and, and this whole collaboration with The Dark Remains. And all the very best for your panic-induced next novel. <laughs> and hello, everybody in Christchurch. Christchurch is one of my favourite cities in the world. If you've seen me do an event there, you'll know that I love it to bits. And I uh, hope to get back in physically sometime soon. We'll all be looking forward to seeing you. Can we have a big round of applause for Ian Rankin? <laughs>